Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Joe. And this is Inside a Mind. Whether you're watching or listening, wherever you are in the world, we hope that this podcast can provide valuable advice on how to better deal with your physical and mental well-being. Now sit back, relax, and join me and introduce our special guest today, Miss Annalie Howling. Thanks for coming on. I like that little clap. That's going to be my new thing. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you good. for having me. Can you just tell the viewers and listeners a bit about you and a bit about your story? Of course. So um, I had a big corporate job for many years and then had a catastrophic burnout when I was coming up for my 30th birthday. I'm 42 now. And uh, during that sort of, you know, because I was quite, like my quest was for like the material, you know, like success. And there's a lot of trauma in the backstory of that in that I grew up in a household of violence. My father was very violent towards me. My mother colluded. So classic, deeply unsafe. And so part of me being burnt out was due to this necessity to create safety and security for myself. So working, 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 you know, building a life, like getting financial security. So there was an underlying layer of trauma to that, that I now understand. Yeah. But yeah, pushed myself beyond limits, was having all manner of physical illnesses, despite, in inverted commas, people listening, the successes that I was having. I had a very good reputation. I had a very well-paying job. I had all the stuff you should have, you know. And I was miserable and I was tired and I was ill. And so I started going for intolerance tests. And I've, I've said this quite a few times on podcasts, but I wasn't intolerant to gluten. I was intolerant to my life and my body was going to stop me. And I was like in a role that was so misaligned with my soul. And no matter how hard you push and no matter what you're doing just to try and like bandage yourself through the days to, you know, and I was chasing this goal, which I understand and have compassion for. I was trying to create this safety for myself. But I was really harming myself in the process. I was mm. really hurting myself. And now your journey now is as a performance coach. Yeah. Because we put life coach and oh, that's wrong. No, it's, well, I mean, both. Kind of. it's the minute I started my training was life yeah. coaching. So I had a life coaching session with a really good friend of mine at that point in my life. Yeah. And it was so transformative. And at the time, coaching was a really woo-woo, weirdy thing. Like it wasn't cool like it is now. And, mm. you know, people like really embrace it. It was very odd and weird. And she'd just been off to San Francisco. But it was such an impactful session on me and I can still remember we did a visualization and I can still see and remember a lot of the things that came out of it so that encouraged me to want to go and pursue and understand and unpick I'm a type a so I want to kind of like <laughs> competitive need to know everything so like <laughs> why did I burn out you know so like went in to go and try and find all about this coaching thing and bring it back into my life and in the pursuit of learning about it and honestly at the time I was like I'm going to build a business out of this and this is going to be great and I'm going to be as successful but doing this new thing but what they don't tell you when you go to coaching school is you're going to like break yourself open and you're going to learn how to be vulnerable and you're going to put yourself back together in quite a different way. Mm. What was the turning point for you, do you think, when you sort of said enough's enough? Because if you're the type to push yourself through everything, what was it? Did you wake up one morning and say enough's enough, I've got to change it? Or I mean, my, my body, it didn't seem to matter what I did. I mean, I know through fitness as well you know and like always looked after myself so I could get away with it mm. I think you boys would know about getting away with it yeah. you can keep yourself together you yeah. can out train certain things you can you know again band-aid your way through it but there was sort of two big things and I'm thinking about the age group of your listenership as well my old job used to be as well around business development so doing a lot of client entertainment and the company that I used to work for thankfully I think now that just wouldn't happen but I was told that I could not leave until the last client went home. And I had to be back in the office the next day at 8 a.m. We work site hours, construction property, okay? So three or four times a week, I would get home at 3 a.m., maybe four, 
back at my desk at eight. And that was three or four times a week. Okay. Yeah. So, and I haven't got the choice and I'm there and I'm trying to keep myself safe and get my house and get my life and all these sorts of things. I'm trying to outrun trauma, which we know you can't do. So this is like my cycle I'm in. Mm. And then I just remember having a really good friend of mine's 30th birthday on the Saturday and I was in bits and mm. I was just like, I can't do this. You know, I can't go out again. I was exhausted. And I just had this realization that that was absolutely fucked excuse mm. my French like mm. why am I not looking forward to having time with my friends because I've been doing something with you know people pleasing chasing around trying to do do something else and as I say in the, in the process of all of that I was so just unhappy and tired all the time as well and just I knew I wasn't myself and I could feel myself sort of drifting further and further away from me mm. and that would be a big turning point how unhappy do you think you were for like what how long a period of time do you think you're unhappy for doing the, that job I mean, there were part, parts of that job that I loved, and I'm still really well connected to a lot of people. You know, from it, we've got some beautiful friends, and I love learning. So there was a lot of things, and you know, I am competitive, and I was good at it. So I used to yeah. get like a dopamine hit, or I, you know, it's good learning about an industry and a sector, and bringing things together and making contacts. But I think the thing that really kind of impacted me there was more my body and what was going on, and not understanding that was burnout you know, and thinking there were these little things that you could fix around the edges. But there was this elephant in the room that I wasn't willing to address, which was this this huge part of my life that was dominating everything else mm. was the thing I needed to deal with. And it was impacting every relationship, including that one with myself. So the other sort of factor with that, with the happiness piece is the way I coped was by completely armoring up and never being vulnerable. Never, never once did I cry at work. Never, I mean, bearing one, I was probably unhinged. If you think about like <laughs> how like, I've been out all night, and you know, I mean, imagine how yeah. emotional you'd be. Like, yeah. I think yeah, about sure. like, I was that. Yeah, yeah, you you just you're the ups and the downs all the time. I would never show any emotion. I would never, um, you know, not do the thing. I would kind, of, I can't, I manned up, mm. right? And I was in a very toxically masculine environment. That's no shade to the guys. It's not an easy place to work for no. anyone. That sort of industry wasn't then. Better now. It's very, very hard. I mean, construction, I think, is the number one sector in industry for men that take their own lives. And it's it's relentlessly difficult and often in quite um, quite unkind, harsh spaces. It's it's not very nice, always, the environments that you're in. And like I said, I know there have been a huge improvement in those sectors since I worked there. But, hmm. yeah, I learned to cope by repressing and I repressed all of my vulnerability and a lot of femininity as well. And the biggest journey of my work back to full happiness has been learning how to be vulnerable and doing it like all the time I'm like a recovering vulnerability <laughs> like you know I'm, I'm literally in recovery every day yeah how did that when you say you had to repress a lot of things and you put the armor on how did that manifest outside of working relationships either with your family or love oh completely avoidant so if we're going into attachment styles which is super trendy at the mm. moment like, oh, really? yeah i mean i was massively avoidant okay. and so i would still you know that would be a, a huge tendency of mine would be to start say creating intimacy in relationship even in some friendships and you know and then as soon as you're you know beginning to sort of de-layer de-armor yeah. and be a bit vulnerable boom because it's just almost too much. It's yeah. almost like um, a juxtaposition. So when you felt that you were starting to give too much, you'd push away at the first hurdle? It would almost just be too triggering, okay, to fine. be honest. Like <laughs> the being intimate and being really vulnerable and 
you know, it's taking quite a long time to put all this stuff on. Mm. So, mm. you know, and you, you just perform an act. And I wasn't doing it to be an asshole or be a bad person. I was doing it to stay alive and keep doing my job, mm. to keep myself alive because I couldn't go home because that wasn't an option. So I know, I understand now, like I said, I've got compassion for that version of myself that was doing that. But yeah, the tendency in, in relationship, like whatever that might be, would just probably be to put in a bit of an arm's length because I couldn't cope if someone had hurt me. So that's that's avoidant. Mm. When everyone's like, boo, the avoidant, like, boo, mm. I get it. But like, you know, the running away, it was more to be able to self-regulate. Yeah. I couldn't regulate in proximity. Okay. So sometimes I might still struggle with that. Like it's something that I need to remove myself. Thankfully not like in a country for weeks <laughs> but yeah. Like, anymore. Yeah. But yeah, I would maybe need to remove myself and regulate. Have you found that's a common thing with clients you speak to? Being avoidant? Well, I th yeah, I think it's more sort of when things get tough and they feel that the armor starts to come down do you feel that's a common theme amongst your clients that mm. people tend to push at that yeah i mean a, lo a lot of my private client work is male and i think perhaps like those being very stereotypical it could yeah. be or it's the other way which is more of an avoidant um sorry an anxious attachment style which is where you suddenly panic and you need the reassurance okay mm. now we can put that into work yeah and we can put that into friendships as well as romantic relationship and even like family dynamics so let's just say you are in a job and you both perform the same role and you get an email saying, well, you know, you're both going in for a meeting with HR, right? If someone's got an anxious tendency, they're gonna be like, oh my God, I'm going through every single email. I need to yeah. know exactly what happened. The avoidant person's already booked a flight and they've got three other jobs that they were talking to anyway and they really don't <laughs> care and like whatever, yeah, you know? Yeah. And if you're disorganized or AKA anxious avoidant, you're gonna experience both. Okay. So, so it's not just fight or flight. There's something in between as well. Yeah, totally. Okay. And it's and more, more often than not in relationships, and you can take these like attachment styles are very very trendy in romantic relationships. Sure. Thing, you know, and everyone likes to kind of I think um, diagnose other people rather than looking at yourself. Okay. And my yeah. whole mo is yeah. look at yourself and be informed, and then we can try and be more responsible. And the ideal path is obviously security, but under stress, we're more likely to exhibit some behaviors in one of these areas and that was how it would come up with do you me. think that's born out of fear of being able to look within rather than projecting out do you think that's just through people's inability to be able to look at themselves and realize there's something going on themselves that you probably need to deal with first rather than projecting onto the person they're with oh, we'd, we'd much rather uh, <laughs> pick like yeah. either pick faults or oh that's the reason why or oh i haven't heard for him because he had a difficult childhood and he's struggling with avoidant tendencies like no he's a dick it's accountability so, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. that's why yeah okay. is that just because people are sort of insecure and they don't really want to accept that they got something wrong with them or what seems to be the underlying factor why people do do that i think there's a couple of things i think there's a whole industry and I'm like you know of people that are creating products and services to die to give you an issue you know there are some real issues and people really need help and i think that there are a lot of terms being banded around at the moment like gaslighting and attachment styles and mm. boundaries and it's almost become a bit like ick because you hear it so much and but what that's doing is that's not holding space or honoring the victims of this that really are in say abusive relationship or really are experiencing some of these dangerous so side effects of it. It's become trendy and you know edgy and almost like we're, we're interchangeably mm. using these words almost slang like and that okay be informed about it but let's not um, 
undermine or devalue anyone that really is suffering with some of these things very much yeah. yeah and i think we need to be careful where we're sitting here and educate ourselves mm. so the reason i'm interested in all of these things is to work with my clients but yeah to your point why do people not want to go there miseducation the fact that it's a bit trendy i think it does sometimes feel easier especially if we do struggle with anxiety it means you're in your head all the time it means you're catastrophizing usually in the future focus you can't be anxious about the past Mm. You feel guilty about the past. Could have, should have, would have. Yeah, I thought about that. Could have, should have, would have. Really yeah. yeah. Really Why did I do that? Wish I'd done something differently. You know, that's past. Present, we might struggle to be in the present with anxiety. I saw this quote the other day, and it was, You struggle more in your head than you do in reality. Mm. What's your view on that? I think that's so true. Yeah. I think that there's no. When I think about the times that I have experienced the highest levels of anxiety, when I think about that, when I think about what I was going through, it was, it was me and my head. It was never the actual circumstances because they move, right? You know, like it might be really bad. And I've been through some bad stuff, but mm. they've always moved. You know, there's always been, you can check in, you can bring yourself back to the present, you can do a gratitude practice, you can look at just practically where you've come from. Even yesterday, you can just take 10 things that happened to you that day and go, I'm 10 steps further on. And if it's an absolute shocker of a day, you go to bed and you wake up tomorrow and you try again. But yeah, in your head, and if you listen to it, if you listen to that loop and what's going on and some of the stuff it's feeding you. And again, if we think back to that, when I was doing that job, I shouldn't be trusting what's going on with those thoughts mm. from lack of sleep, frankly, probably dreadful nutrients, you know, anxiety, unhealed trauma, like next level, like, you know, on my shoulder all the time. Those are not thoughts that I should be listening to and letting them at the controls of my life. How do you sort of get away from those thoughts? And like you said earlier about sort of breaking everything down and you had to do that for yourself. Is that just seemingly the only way to really deal with these problems? Or is there a way that people listening or watching this can start at home and start practicing? What, what advice would you give for that? So self-inquiry, self-reflection is the best way to do that. And that could be... You know, YouTube have got amazing videos on things mm. like that. Journal prompts, Google it, look on Pinterest. There's some lots, I'm very anti, you know, let's get as much out here for, that people are not privileged. Let's help people help themselves as much as possible. But yeah, have a look into, you know, some self-inquiry work. When something's presenting on the surface or you're having a thought, usually it's acting on behalf of a fear, okay? Mm -hmm. So shame and fears like fear, shame lives in your body. It's what's left behind by trauma. And shame is I am. So uh, I am, and I do a lot of work in trauma, so I'm just going to throw out a few shame statements that clients have had. I am disgusting. I am a failure. I am unworthy. I am unlovable. I am broken. And if you think about something that maybe you've experienced and it's left behind, it's like shame hangover. Well, you even think about hangovers and you're like, oh, Mm. You know, we look at the shoulda, woulda, coulda, the guilts. You're probably left behind with a bit of shame about some things. And that resonates in your system as an I am. And shame is actually very hard to put into words. I've given you some of those statements now. But to release shame, we have to use self-compassion. And shame can act out in our ego, ego behavior. Mm -hmm. Shame can act out being defensive. Shame can act out being reactive. Maybe we're being more reactive to someone than we would normally. Maybe we're being more emotional, however you want to put that. And we need to look inside as to what it's trying to either like protect or hide. Because we are ashamed of our shame. And that sounds like a weird statement. But if I think I am disgusting, I don't want YouTube 
or anyone knowing that, that's really embarrassing. I want to mm. hide it. So what am I going to do? I'm going to mask it. I'm going to try and be perfect. I'm going to people please. I'm going to try and get everything right. I'm going to try and perform, put armor on me. I don't want you to see that, mm. that I'm disgusting. If that's what I think about myself, because you'll never be connected to me. And I fear rejection more than anything else, because we all do. That's how we're conditioned. Rejection, there's studies where people are being rejected and there's actual pain. People are feeling pain from rejection. Mm. So how can people start looking at that inquiry? What are maybe some of these I am statements that you're holding inside of you? Is it yours? So I know it sounds like a strange thing to say, but quite a lot of the time, is that something someone once said to you? Is it something that uh, you were told in your childhood or to believe? I had a client in on Friday, and I'm going to change some details just for uh, confidentiality purposes, but with some presenting with some different health issues. And we went really into the, the childhood, and every single time their mother put their meal down in front of them, said, I hope you choke. Wow. Like, it's all they can remember. I hope you choke. And that having children was hard, having children ruined their life, the parent, never have children, it's expensive, I haven't been able to do any of the things I want to do with you, I hope you choke. And guess what, has got issues physically that might be around some of these things. I'm obviously, I'm obviously kind of skirting around the edge here, mm -hmm. but yeah. So coming back to the point of you kind of being self-aware, self-reflective of what's going on, and from that, I'm gonna guess, you, you work with you to sort of cure not cure, that's probably the wrong word, but to help Bring fix more that awareness problem. too. Yeah, but we, you know, without needing to use a professional, the first line of inquiry, we tend to act at this surface level, like I say. So maybe we do something here today and I feel um, angry or I feel upset or I'm not, what, okay, what is that trying to inform me of? It's trying to get my attention. Mm. Right, so why would I be feeling that? Maybe I feel like you um, got a glimpse of some of my shame in my system. And so I need to, like I say, overact and compensate for that. Maybe I'm struggling in intimate relationships. Why is that line of self-inquiry? I'm trying to protect myself from being hurt. Why would that be? Because I had a horribly mm. traumatic childhood and I've got issues about abandonment. Okay, why would that be? We go down the chain and we keep going to the bottom. I don't know if you've been like diving. You can't go to the bottom straight away. You'll get the bends. You, mm. you have to decompress, decompress every layer. Yeah. So that's what I would say about healing to anybody listening and just understanding yourself. Don't need to go to the bottom straight away. Just allow yourself to go mm. down a layer. That's, Which, that's what I had to do with the vulnerability thing. You know, I put years of armor on me. I put years and years and years of conditioning onto myself and into my system. Mm couldn't get all of that off straight away probably would have been too much you have to allow yourself to decompress into different environments and frankly probably into yourself as mm. well so that's the individual how would you then say if you were to because we get asked this a lot on our if okay. we ask our audience we get asked about recognizing in a partner so if we have people that ask mm. us how would you give any advice to if i think my partner has immense anxiety and depression and they're really really struggling how would you then cope with giving them advice to give to their partner, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really hard. And there's a couple of things in that. You cannot help someone who does not want to and is not open to helping themselves. Okay. So that is just something to remember, as much as we may love them. If they are not open to doing any work and if they're completely closed, no matter they could be, and it could be very good reasons why, and they could have had all sorts of trauma, and you can see it all, and we could understand that. Mm. But if they are not willing to step in at all, 
you've got to leave it. Okay, that's interesting. Like I went for a talk uh, the other day with Paul Brunson, who's the matchmaker at Married on First yeah, Sight, yeah. and he said the number one reason that relationships don't work is unhealed trauma. That's very interesting. Could you talk about not being ready to heal a lot? Yeah, he actually gave an example of that. So him and his wife, I didn't know this, but they'd started a matchmaking agency. It's kind of how he got into part of the role. And, mm. and, and someone asked from the audience and said, well, what would you do about trauma if people arrived? And so we wouldn't work with them for at least six months. We would insist that that person, very rigorous sort of intake process mm. and questionnaires, obviously for matching people. But if they understood that this person had not done work and had trauma in the past, they would not be prepared to match them. Okay. Because that was the number one reason that it wouldn't work. So you really do have to, as much as you may love somebody, and this can absolutely be true, if someone is not ready to step into that healing work and looking at their trauma, you can't do it for them. You can't love them into it. And you can't, you know, you're... Can't force you're them. Yeah, and you're not meeting yeah. your own needs in relationship. There might be a bit of self-abandonment in there as well. Because I, I love you this much, but you're not willing to do the work. And there's not capacity for you to do it for everybody. You've got to keep your own needs in mind as well. So, I mean, that's a possibility is that if this person might be moving towards doing some things, maybe at a different pace to you, that you keep your own life online, keep your own hobbies, your own interests, your own friends, your own relationships, those mm. sorts of things. So I'm not saying it's not a go. I'm just saying be, be wary of that before people go down, down maybe a rabbit hole. But to help people, I mean, a good way of introducing conversation is to do it outside again paul always said a, well, paul brunson said a good way to argue is to step outside of your house okay if you imagine doing that it changes the environment completely i always give the advice of going on a walk or if you think about being in the car and you have really good chats then so you're sat side That's by true. side yeah so same as when you're uh, going on a walk you're side by side rather than direct eye contact which can be again quite intimidating it can trigger people it can almost be a bit too much you can get flooded so being on a walk you're side by side so there's still the connection there's bilateral eye movement because you're scanning the horizon constantly when you're walking which is keeping your prefrontal cortex online so when we go into emotional situations or we're going into fight or flight or something difficult we tend to go to our limbic system the animal part of the brain that you know and so you're more likely to be flooded again than emotional if you're doing uh, bilateral eye movement you're keeping that prefrontal cortex online so we can have a bit more rational we're able to stay more in our body be more present and then the act of walking itself which you all know is keeping yourself you're discharging stress in movement as well so i would say a lot of the conversation you could have like the best conversation skills you could be the kindest most loving partner environment is really important about how you're doing that and also invite the other person is this you know i would like us to talk about x uh, you know, I feel like we're constantly hitting a crossroads here or uh, I feel like I'm not connecting with you. I'd like to know more about this maybe potentially difficult subject. Mm. I, when would be a good time for us to do that mm. and invite the other person in as well? Because you're just like anything. You're not going to get if somebody tried to do that to me after three nights on the bounce, you know, that, that <laughs> terrible work week, it wouldn't have gone very well. Time yeah. place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I would say think about those things and just. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing to do to be able to hold somebody else's pain, but make sure that you're looking after your own needs mm. in that as well. I'd love to go to the topic of toxic relationships. And um, why do people, this is, this is something that's always confused me, but I don't think it's a straight up answer. Why do people stick around when they're in like a toxic relationship? What's the, what's the mental state sort of people have behind that? Do you want to give me a, uh, there's, there's a few ways I can answer this. So do you want to give me a little bit more on what you would mean by toxic relationship with your readers yeah, or what kind like, of things? Say if someone's, you know, being controlling 
um, putting you down. It could be an abusive relationship to some state as, as well. What? Why do people stick around like that? Because um, when it comes to those situations, I feel like if it was me, I'd just get out of there. But I don't think a lot of people don't have that option. Um, so what, how can people sort of, if they are in that listening or watching, if they are in that toxic environment where they're you know, feeling worse about themselves, being around someone, leaving the house and feeling heavier than, than feeling lighter, how, what, what advice would you give to them? So there's a couple of things, that factors that can be attributing to this. And one of the things is, and I'm going to be quite stereotypical here, so we are attracted, there's a beautiful book by Dr. Harbour Hendricks called Getting the Love You Want, bit old school bit of a strange title but it's a really interesting book and we are attracted they say to partners usually in like early relationships I mean when you first start dating first start having relationship experience that have the magnified negative traits of one of your caregivers okay so imagine one of your caregivers so like parents grandparents had a big role or somebody else looked after you as a child the negative traits of and then we often would start dating somebody that might have the magnified traits of that caregiver. The reason being, romantic relationships, it's in their book, are designed to complete our childhoods. That's a big sentence, I'm gonna so leave that there. Mm, but it's because really it's a bit like, if I loved this person enough, this, this my father's very violent, right? So let's just say I picked a, a violent man to date, and you know, if I could be good enough, right? If I could be a good girl enough, if I could be perfect enough, if I could make him love me enough and he didn't treat me badly, then somehow it's like I've completed level one of Mario Kart and like I've completed my childhood and everything's okay because I must be okay because I'm, I really clearly am enough despite mm. not feeling like enough. So you remember how we go back to like unhealed trauma being yeah. the thing that really breaks relationship. Then another layer on this is there are five trauma responses. So everybody knows about fight, flight, and freeze. Mm -hmm. The other two people don't talk about very much are flop and fawn. So flop, pass out, the cold. Like I always give the example of, you know, like grooms at the altar, and you see them passing out in like, <laughs> yeah. the funny videos. Or like the little impala deer that hop along and they see a pressure <laughs> and just go, ah, and they like pass out. So that's flop, okay. Fawn is really interesting. And I do a lot of one-to-one -one work with, I'm just gonna trigger warning this, I'm gonna talk about sexual assault. So I do a lot of work with victims of sexual assault, both sexes. And what fawn does is fawn is a trauma response. First things first to say about trauma responses. Trauma responses are designed to keep you alive, okay? So we're here now. If somebody came in with a knife and went to attack us, we are likely maybe to have a different response. Now, Joe might go for them. You might try and run. I might freeze. More likely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It might be the other way around. You know, so, but the point being, our brains, this pre, this amygdala area, fires much, much, much faster than your prefrontal cortex, which is the front right. of your brain, okay? Prefrontal cortex stores things like questions, lists, directions, times, dates, like that kind of data, okay? So it's your more rational, rational cognitive center. Your broker's area, which is language, sits just behind it. I'm sort of pointing for people that can't see at the top of my head. That goes offline when we're in danger because guess what? I don't need to know what I need to buy from Waitrose later or where the traffic might be. I need to keep myself alive. So that's the example of someone coming in to attack us. But there's another way this could go. Tom, you might pass out and I might start to fawn for this person because this could be the only sort of thing in my armory that might keep me alive because the other situations might not be viable right now. 
and my brain has selected it for me. Remember that I did not choose it. This is really, really important mm. in trauma and shame. Okay, so in the context of domestic abuse relationships, there's a lot of evidence and data that suggests that people in uh, relationships where domestic violence is prevalent often have unbelievable sex lives, right? Which sounds quite bizarre. So if you think, and I'm going to put this into male or female context just for, for ease, and again, I'm being stereotypical, so forgive me. If the, if the man, let's just say, is the abuser in this relationship and the woman, the shame that you would feel about having a pleasurable sexual experience when someone's just been abusive to you would be incredibly confusing. Like, how on earth could I experience an orgasm from a man who has just beat the crap out of me? Mm. But your system, this attachment system, this fawning system, is designed to keep us attached, safe, and alive. Now, this is, this is mind-blowing yeah. information. You are able to have an orgasm during rape. That is because there's a thing called non-cordance, which happens in your system. So your body can react in a certain way that is not how you feel. Now, that's actually really important as a separate conversation about sex, because men could think, oh, you're clearly really into this because you're demonstrating physical signs of being into this, and you might not be there at all rationally this is non-cordance i'd suggest that everybody reads the book come as you are by emily nagelski i'll send you the details please tag it this is really important so victims of domestic abuse relationships you're likely because you're afraid the trauma response has been selected for you you're fawning to keep yourself safe now i gave a very extreme example mm -hmm. just then but that can still be that i don't want to be shouted at in public i don't want to be uh control i don't want to miss out on the opportunity to go out with my friends so i better behave myself better be a good girl again i don't want to um miss out on this person's love and connection and then as you mentioned the shame why can't i leave mm. why haven't i left them why have i been here so long well that's why because you're in this trauma response of fawn and remember that all trauma responses leave us with shame shame is the i am and so what's the i am you'd be having from that i am broken i am disgusting I am a failure, I'm unworthy, I'm weak, because you can't leave. And then when you're being sort of operated by this system of shame, that's how you're living your life. You're viewing the entire world through this lens. I spent a lot of my life thinking that I was helpless, hopeless and weak. That was my shame statements. I am. I am helpless, hopeless and weak. So I picked relationships, challenges, work friends based on me viewing my life through that lens mm. that's nuts right that is absolutely nuts right? just to come back to you know you said the point of someone coming in the room with yep. like a knife if joe was to fight i was to go and you were to pass out yeah is there any way you can sort of train your brain to no. say i'd fight he flights no um, i mean you you could in theory um you know if, if you were a jiu-jitsu champion did it every single day there may be more propensity towards your system in in theory you've kind of training for combat a lot more i mean you right. guys played rugby a lot so yeah. maybe that you would activate into a system also don't forget this is going quicker than you're thinking so your body is like eyeing up so maybe the the protagonist would be smaller and your brain initially goes i can have him right mm. so it but this is happening so 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 fast it's not that you're able to think it through so that's and that is a really 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 important point with trauma because i think people feel very ashamed by how they reacted in a certain situation because it was a choice right so let's just say someone had to go at you or whatever or on the road you're like why did why did i just stand there and let him do that or why didn't i answer them back or you know i shouldn't have just walked off then like those are trauma responses that you're eliciting 
You know, okay. when you like, you should have said something in the moment. You get yeah, home, yeah. you've got all the answers, and you're like, "Damn it, I've got this really cool <laughs> reply that yeah. I could do right now." Like, probably because you were in freeze because somebody just you didn't expect that person to like, you know, clip you off in the car park, and you're a bit like, "What?" Mm. So and you didn't know in that moment how dangerous or not it was because you're scanning. So coming back to it, people think it's a choice at the time. Correct, and okay. then that's why you feel shame. And so for me, so interesting. You and so here's the other thing. So like you said, what would we do? It could happen again, and we could all have a completely different response. So it doesn't mean that because you say froze when somebody came in here, that every time something difficult would happen, you would freeze. Yeah. But we think that will be the case. And so then you start, like I say, avoiding challenges. You start, um, you know, or actually I, I won't go there or I don't want to take that flight because I might be a bit busy at that time or I'm not going to go to that game anymore because there's too many people there or I actually don't really like going to the supermarket unless it's 10 o'clock at night because we start making choices around so often the trauma response and the shame we feel because we don't understand that we didn't choose it. Mm. Does what's been going on in the day affect that so obviously this is quite a out of there um response but last saturday there was a problem on the rugby pitch i was like straight in didn't even think about it, it was just blank behind the eyes and you know people were scrapping whatnot but then a couple of weeks before when it happened i was like nope i was like straight out of there which but I, I tend to like and it sounds like so random but sometimes i'm like yeah straight in but you don't think like you said but sometimes i'm like absolutely not but does that make a difference of what's gone on on the day, what's gone on in the week, whether I'm stressed, whether I'm happy, whether I'm, you know, could be ill? Does, does that make More a difference? More about your physiology, it... yeah. So your brain obviously knows all about, like, the the health of your engine, yeah. if you like. So you said at that moment, and it's also assessed, it's assessed everything. So your brain's on all the time, scanning, scanning, scanning. So, like, it depends on, you know, there's two different rocks or fights mm. but like yeah who are the guys how big are they how much energy have you got how healthy is your system and so your amygdala is like because it said it does, does it so quickly it selected the correct response for that situation and to your point you've selected or it selected for you rather two totally different responses in a fairly similar situation mm. so yeah there are always different factors at play you know you've been doing this for 20 years now is that right i've done yeah, i started doing years? coaching work about 20 years ago and then i've moved into tra trauma is more recent trauma to me was the missing piece of the puzzle for myself right, okay. my own healing and then as soon as i basically started on this path this work about five years ago it's just something that i couldn't not do yeah did you find that that was the last piece of the puzzle for you because that was your journey Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it really, like I say, I lived my life with a lens of I am helpless, hopeless and weak. Okay. And when I understood that and when I understood the impact it was having on me and my life and then how I could heal from it. Um, and this is going to sound really facetious. and I don't want it to. But how how easy it was to heal from it. That made such a big difference to me. And it and I was talking to my PT the other day and uh careful what I say it's going to help someone related to that and uh, he was like it's really good of you really good of you to do that and I just said look if some, if I turned up here with back pain and you knew how to get me out of the pain you'd help me right and he's like yeah and so that's just what I think I know how to get people out of this pain and this is the kind of pain that affects you every day and it's something that's in your mind and you think there's something wrong with you mm. and yeah that for me is how I lived my life thinking there's something wrong with me and it was so profound this work and I know that I can help other people. Do you think because you've been in the driver's seat with these problems, things you've gone through at work in the corporate world, things you've gone through in your personal life, it's allowed you to be 
a 10 times better coach than mm. if you hadn't gone through these problems. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's there's been some people, so again, I'm, I'm just trying to be very careful what I'm saying. <laughs> there's, been, there's been some people in that have told me things that I genuinely didn't think humanity was capable of, truly. And I don't think I could have sat there and listened and held the space with one person telling me things that you genuinely can't even imagine would be true. And, you know, I have a responsibility, professional responsibility, and also to, the, to that soul, frankly, to do the very best job that I possibly can to set them as free as possible mm. from something, like I say, beyond most of our comprehensions. Do you think empathy and experience gives you that? Or do you think it's just innate in people? I think that has, like, I mean, it's one of those sayings, I think until you've seen a lot of dark, you know, I can sit in it. Yeah. So I, I'm able yeah. to sit in it with people. There are there are people that quite understandably aren't able to do that, and this is my path. Do I did I want to get knocked around as a kid and terrified of my father and grow up with terrible relationships? No. Has it helped me with my job now? Absolutely. Hmm. Am I grateful? No. Like <laughs> you know, but like, can I find peace for it? Yes. So yeah. That's awesome. You said um, when I saw your Instagram you work with a lot of army vets mm. is that one of the main main things you do is working with them and sort of helping them transition into day-to-day -day life so that's the I sit on the board of a charity called Hire a Hero UK which is exactly that we focus on tra transitioning any um, service leaver or veteran from the okay. armed forces any of the armed forces uh, into civilian life because as you all appreciate from sports and transition and I know you both sort of play as well but there's a there's a huge um learning curve really discombobulating time like it's the transition period like you're fine when you start where you are you're great when you get to the destination in anything in life you know leaving my marriage like anything any new challenge like sport everything but you need someone with you during that transitional phase that's when you need that support so this is what the charity does beautifully i would never charge a veteran for my work that's my um pro bono i charge everyone the same price it's completely transparent apart from a veteran i would never charge a veteran that's amazing. Do you find a lot of the veterans struggle with the same problem when they come to you? Uh, it, de it depends, actually, because it's a really interesting range of um, normality, I guess. You know, something that I maybe would think, oh, my, you know, wouldn't maybe be normal. That might not be the, the mm. issue that, say, is, is presenting with. Um, and then there's a lot of there's a lot of areas that thankfully you can give your skills and help towards where they have maybe been less supported than they should have been, frankly. Yeah. So yeah, it's different issues. When there was, um, obviously the wars going on at the moment as well, but when the Taliban reclaimed Afghanistan yeah. a couple of years ago, we had a lot of information come around the charity and, and any charities working with veterans, that would be a very uh, difficult time because obviously all of these people went through serving and lost friends and loved ones and had huge periods of time away and maybe got injuries and, and various things, mental and physical injuries. And when Afghanistan was reclaimed by the Taliban, there, there could have and there was a, a sense of that um, clientele needing a lot more support because it's hugely retreated. Yeah. Where does your love of the vets come from, out of curiosity? Oh, I, I would say that was from my grandma, actually. Okay, she it was always her favourite sort of stories was the time in the war. But also, I think I had, like, 
I realised during my training I had a set of specialist skills like Liam Neeson and Taken, except mine was like coaching and trauma. <laughs> <Not killing> people. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, what am I going to use it for? And I wanted to, this is quite interesting. So I actually contacted like some of the bigger charities for the veterans saying, mm. look, I've got this skill set. I really want to help. I want to do it for free. And they were like, no, no. Oh, Not interested. Okay, thanks. And I remember saying like, well, I don't have to do the vets, but like, can I, do you want me to come and coach you? Like the leadership team. Like surely you need some help yeah. and rather than you paying someone else to do it, you know, I do work with like some pretty, big hitters yeah and they were like no you're all right like, oh right thanks and then <laughs> and then randomly <laughs> in the, yeah, well, i was literally trying to give him my time for free and people pay quite a lot of money for my time but anyway never mind like my, my ego is in the gutter and then uh, <laughs> and then um very serendipitously i was in uh, a coffee shop on our local high street joe mm-hmm. And I happened to see a poster for the charity, Hire a Hero UK, that I'm now involved in, which is very random. I don't even really know how it was there because they're based in Cardiff. So it was it was truly like serendipity. And yeah, exactly. And I started off doing, they did want me, hooray. And then <laughs> my ego was back. And then I started doing coaching um, with the veterans community. And then as it's moved on, like uh, work in the advisory board and do a lot more around the fundraising and, and helping raise profile. That's amazing. That's do, you, awesome. do you find a lot of soldiers um, and ex-veterans uh, find solace in fitness and physical fitness and mm. being outside because I know when obviously we've never done anything like that but I know just from physical fitness for my own mental state it's just it does wonders for both of us as Joe and I preach all the time on on these podcasts is that something that helps them a lot when it when it comes to coming back from these places and you know being outside working out sort of escaping your problems for a few hours I mean I personally have never worked with an out of shape vet like mm. and no matter their age and no matter their injury profile mm. so there's just and I think that's linked to almost the work ethic mm. as well I mean I am biased because I have a, a huge care and uh, sensitivity towards this community but the work ethic is just unbelievable there's no um, entitlement you know, the, one of the reasons I wanted to get involved with that community is I'm like, oh, f- I'm frankly way too selfish to don't like dedicate my life to saving this country. And, yeah. you know, that was not something I was prepared to do. And I felt that the only thing I could do around that was to honour that community in my way. So I think there is something in this inherent kind of um, standards that they keep for themselves and fitness and the foundation and mentally strong. They probably look at more like mental toughness and resiliency. And my charity mainly is uh, run by all ex-SAS and okay. SBS, which is incredibly cool. And they are next <laughs> level because the they're all, the best, they're, oh, the it's amazing. Yeah. And like, so we get to go to the Special Forces Club and do all sorts of cool stuff. And that's they're all basically made of carbon fiber where they've fallen out of helicopters and stuff. But the way, and they're the that's kindest, smart. most gentle, loving people but it really is i mean i think and they have they have to be very patient with me because i can't do the acronyms and i don't know all like the way yeah, you know yeah. and they're like oh god here we go again she's got the wrong war but you know like fine and so when we're doing events and things like that but they just they're so humble yeah i'm always struck by how humble that community is and i just feel like they are under i almost feel a bit embarrassed sometimes that they're kind of underserved in consideration for what they are going through and their families, you know, mm. who are maybe lacking their partner and the support for that period of time. There's a there's a stat that blows my mind with the armed forces, which is that it's only oh, I'll ask you guys, how many people do you think leave year on year that are wounded, injured and sick from the army that are discharged? What do you think the percentage is? That's why they have to leave. Don't what? even know where to start, mate. No, oh, I wouldn't know start. Well, roughly. I was gonna say like thirty percent. Oh, it's about 50%. oh, am I wrong? I Wait, fifty percent. It's twelve percent. Twelve. Only twelve percent. Twelve forty. I need to get the this year's figures, but it's, it's very low. 
that's not the reason that people are leaving. Quite a lot of the time they don't want to leave. There might be there was a lot of time for budget that's cuts. So interesting. So like you guys with sport and having to leave sports yeah. and athletes that I also work with career ending injury yeah. that you didn't want to leave or there was a cut or your you know like a club went bust yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. so in in the armed forces you I thought it was huge I thought it'd be oh, really probably, high yeah. I yeah, thought yeah. it'd be like oh god everyone's coming out and they're you know they're unable to carry on because they're yeah. wounded injured or sick and that's not the case so actually there's a huge requirement for transitional support to find meaningful work and employment for that community. Well, also it's the, not just the unemployment, but also the homeless. I mean, the stats on yes. how the ex-vets who are now homeless with absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stats is, is insane. Mm -hmm. I mean, the yeah. homeless people who are either have served is astronomical. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there's a part of that as well. They're trying yep. to give these people a help after they've served to get either get into the workplace or, or it's just, it's incredible. Mm. Yeah. I also find it funny you said um, they're the most humble people and I this is something I've just picked up on in life is I always think the most in, in a male perspective from the guys I've met with rugby and stuff like that, the most alpha most in a way dangerous men are always the most humble mm. kindest they don't have anything to prove they just are and I always think when you meet these like ex-army people that's SAS or I've had the pleasure of having dinner with a few of them is like they're all the same. They're mm. all built from the same cloth. They're all incredibly humble, but they also can be dangerous people inside. And I think that's one of the best things in our case as men is being able to control your emotions and being able to be a great guy, whether that's being polite around people, not having to show off, not having to act tough. I think they are, in my opinion, you know, the people I aspire to be like. So from working with people at is that a, a trait which pretty much all of them have and that's kind of built into them? Mm, definitely. And I think as well, I love what you said then, by the way, being strong and kind is just perfect. Mm. But if you were to put an act on, I mean, they talk about this in all the books, like Navy SEALs work, everything. You cannot put on an act when you're serving. If you're like, Joe, you're right. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm great to lead this one. And like, you're not. You've just screwed yeah. okay. the entire yeah. group. You know, you've just ruined everyone. Like yeah. if you're really not like doing that well today, like you need to say. Yeah. So actually they're amazing with vulnerability and vulnerability is directly linked to courage. So, you know, being hugely courageous, mm -hmm. being in the armed forces, let's say, you have to be fully, fully vulnerable. Mm. Like I have to let you carry me if I can't do it. Mm. We talk about selection a lot and obviously like everyone gets very excited about it, including me. And I've heard the stories a million times and they're like, oh, whenever, you know, whenever the guys are talking again, but every story about selection and what made them pass was not some like death defying physical. F I mean, obviously you're insanely fit, but you're mm. mentally somewhere else. Mm. And one of the guys, one of the founders and on the board, a guy called Nige, who is an le absolute legend. He said that on selection for him in the Breckens, he had so many blisters on his feet. They were basically like, open both you know just there was no mm. skin left on the bottom of his feet and so you're sleep deprived on purpose you know they're, they're just jangling your brain on purpose as well as your body but him and a friend would get up 40 minutes early bearing in mind you're sleeping for like i don't know two hours a night maybe you're running a marathon every day on the breckens and they'd found out or worked out that pain takes 40 minutes to metabolize in your body so they basically each bless them took a turn mm. to bandage one of his feet and he would hobble around to start with for 40 minutes until the whistle's going, the lights are on and off you go again, knowing that he could run. Wow. Now, his friend had a problem with his back. There was a disc that was slipped. And I always forget the name of this. So this is why this is why I need them, need them here, the dictionary of terms. But the special pack that you have, the weighted okay. pack. Yeah. yeah. So he would carry his friends and they knew where the checkpoints were. And so Nigel would give it back to him, like half a mile out from the checkpoint. That's amazing. And it was never the 
you know, it wasn't this sort of death-defying one-man story of greatness. Mm. I mean, they're all incredibly great, but it was it was no ego and being beyond one another, you know, doing these things together, being really vulnerable. Like, you've got another guy strapping your feet up. Yeah. You, you're in pain. You've got another guy carrying your pack. Like, and they are passing selection. Like, that's mm. incredible to mm. me. You have so, to be able to trust them as well. Right, Because yeah. that's something I really struggle with from my point of view is trust. I've really struggled to trust people um outside of my family and it's just i think when it comes to things like that you just can't you can't second guess it can mm. you it, you have to be able to trust the person opposite you and i think that's what these in a way these um not events what they call these uh practices are meant to break you mm. but i also think you know from breaking you they make you you know these are arguably the strongest people on the planet mentally and when they kept my, my dad worked with a few sas people and a few marines and he was like mentally toughest people you ever meet because they've done stuff no one else has mm. and people like david goggins i'm not sure if you, yeah, yeah. yeah you know all the stuff he says where he just pushes himself i saw this um this clip of him the other day and it's like a four person four person like marathons through the desert where they just run like constantly for 24 hours he just did it on his own just <laughs> he just did it on his own <laughs> everyone was in teams of four and he was like nah just gonna do it on my yeah, own. Yeah, then went to like saying you did the big shop after like. That. Yeah, <laughs> he was like, yeah, pretty, pretty chill. But stuff like that is like he's an ex. You know, he did all the army yeah. things. He yeah. did like the RAF one, the the army, the Marines. He he did everything just because he wanted to do the training. People like that are just like, you know, I, I kind of envy them in a way. I'd love to yes, be yes. like that, but it's just it takes a different different type of person to get to that level to keep breaking yourself down every single day mm. and keep going, mm. which is just in my opinion That's incredibly nice. admirable linking that to trauma i mean mm -hmm. closer to home someone like ashley kane i think you might know yeah yeah, yeah he, he's doing oh, yeah. very similar events that he, these feats mm. that he's achieving since his poor daughter died i mean it's what he this guy's achieving week in week out is is nuts i wanted to ask you about the link to that and trauma is that some people even closer to home for me is that they've since losing since loss and grief they're throwing themselves into things could you argue that that's basically covering up for something and not actually dealing with the problem itself? Um, you could say that that is the pursuit uh, of meaning and purpose that is getting them through every day. Is there likely potentially to be a point when your body may ask you to rest, when your mind is ready to unpack and heal another layer of that? Absolutely. Mm. You know, he's doing something in the highest purpose, which is honouring the death of his daughter mm. and, you know, raising money for the cause and doing beautiful things. And then you've got that buy-in. You've got, I mean, when we talk about purpose and meaning, which is the the ultimate fuel mm. for all of this. Mm -hmm. Like, I was literally listening to podcasts on the way here, you know, Peter Attia. Mm. So he was had yeah. a, an amazing guest on. I don't know his name. It's a brilliant podcast. And he's saying that, you know, purpose and meaning is like the protein of the macronutrient profile you need for happiness. Like, you can kind of get by without the others a bit, but you mm. can't, you'd fall apart without protein. And that's purpose and meaning. So, yeah, Ashley is doing this unbelievably purposeful cause at some point may i've no doubt he is as well i don't know what what else he's doing he's obviously written his book mm. and you know processing as much as he can but in my experience of trauma trauma is something that you know you need at some point you will be facing different layers of it mm. i mean also when the trauma response that i talked about your prefrontal cortex when it's offline because you're in your amygdala it's actually tagging stuff right so that's why even though you can't remember it at the time like something can happen to you and you can be like what happened what happened and you go I, I can't remember what they said but I can remember what they were wearing or mm. I can't remember 
you know, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he was right up in my face and, you know, or the car came this way. Yeah. Or, so that's that's like trauma for you. But then later on, you could get triggered by, uh, I'm looking at a red curtain now, but you could get tra- triggered by a guy with a red scarf because, oh, that was in the corner of my eye at the same time. And your your body, as you start to find safety, when you start to heal, will allow in some of these things that were previously unavailable Mm, so that's why we can seem triggered and it can be it can feel very paradoxical because it can seem like why the hell is this coming up now like it's been three years since they passed Mm -hmm. and i thought i was okay and i've done all these brilliant things and i've you know got through it all and why is it that now i'm feeling really bad about a toxic relationship that ended four years ago why is it i'm doubting myself about trusting again why is it that um i keep thinking about that person that betrayed my trust or whatever it might be it's because actually it's like a compliment from your system that you've got to a place of foundational safety that you're able to unpack this next layer because at that time of deep deep grief you just needed to get through Mm. okay that's really interesting. interesting. We put, um, I said that at the same time. Um, we put out a poll on our Instagram where people could ask questions mm-hmm. for you, you know, get some advice. We said we keep it anonymous, but one question we got was like, you know, we, we both we both talk on WhatsApp and like, we were like, yeah, that's just a great question one. and one that yeah. kind of hit home for this person. Yeah. Do you want to read it out? Or? Yeah, yeah, I've got it written down here. Okay. So how much does a tumultuous relationship with a parent impact that same child's adult life? Oh, so again, on this podcast, I literally listened to it the way here. They said it was about 52% was relational, which means that your, let's just say your mum literally gave you 52% of your trauma and unhappiness, if we're looking at happiness. So that was a stat from that podcast. But in my experience, it's like anything. It depends how much you let it. So as a child, you have no choice. To break this down a bit further, until you're seven, you don't see yourself as emotionally separate from your caregivers. This is also the place you form your limiting beliefs, okay? Where we self-sabotage from Mm. in the future. Such fun. So, like, (laughs) if you grew up in a household, like I did, that was like, well, that sounds too good to be true. Yeah. And nothing having good comes easily. Uh, Money doesn't grow on trees. It's really expensive to do this. Right, so I grew up in a household where if something sounds good, it must be something wrong with it. You're going to get screwed over, so don't believe it. Like, nothing's basically that lovely. Everything's a bit hard. Getting money is hard. Holding on to money is very hard, okay? So that becomes my belief system. That's one set of things. The other set is the emotional, uh, like, not having emotional autonomy until after you're seven. So my daughter is seven. She's seven and a half. And let's just say last i'm just giving an example let's just say she was five i can actually remember an example i'm very chill and i'm very conscious of this i mean she'll still be in a therapist's office i've no doubt at some point but like you know <laughs> i remember we got uh i couldn't work out how to get out of this part we got locked into paris airport basically because our flight was delayed for 20 hours and i couldn't work out how to get out of security once you're in and it was all really hectic and really tired anyway and i was beginning to get a bit panicky i'm really tired it's really late single parent on my own in an airport really worried about her like because she's so tired bless her and i was beginning to get very unlike me a little bit like where are we going to go is there going to be a hotel room the flights are being cancelled left right and center and I could see her starting to take it on. She's literally embodying my emotions. It's almost like you're throwing it onto her. Absorbing, like, right, okay, wow. check, Absorbing your stress. Check yourself right now. I was like, right, check mm. yourself right now. I was like, baby. And I always say to her, like, mommy doesn't know the answer right now, but I will figure it out. You know, like, so just, but I can see her taking it on. So yes, if you grew up in a household where you had one or more parents that didn't emotionally regulate, like that lovely client of mine, hope you choke, hope you choke, you mm. know, every day, or you had other things happening or they're in a toxic relationship system so they're self-abandoning which means they're not meeting your needs 
There's so many things that could be going on and happening all the time. When you're seven, you start creating emotional autonomy. So you're aware of, of having some control of your own emotions and like your own feelings being separate to that of your parents. But mm -hmm. that can make you feel more distanced from them as well. It doesn't necessarily feel positive. Then you've got these childhood held beliefs, which become self-sabotage behaviors when we're older. Mm. So for me, let's just say stuff starts going really, really well, kicks in. Oh, well, it must be too good to be true. You start to believe that everything that good that happens. Avoidant tendencies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a really great guy. We're having a really great time. This is a really good relationship. There's literally nothing wrong. I should fuck it up somehow. Like, here we go. Yeah. Hand me the phone so to text all my toxic exes, you know, or like, what yeah. can I do to sabotage this the most? Because everything is great. Mm. Because this is too good to be true. Yeah. So if you think if the person um, that wrote that in, what is the effect? Relationally, it's been it's documented that about 52% of your trauma it can be relationally, if you like, given to you. That's not genetic. It's relational. It's behavior. Okay. And then you have the impacts of your belief systems that are now things that are self-sabotaging you as you're older. So the good thing about that is it's not necessarily genetic. You can be predisposed to certain things like depression, alcoholism. There's lots of anecdotal evidence about mm. that, studies, mm. things like that. The reason you need to know that is because then you can look at maybe where you might be vulnerable to certain things and look at behaviors, systems, habits that you either want to form or stay away from, okay? But the answer is this is an impact that can have been had on you, but because it's not uh, genetically, it's not part of your DNA, you are able to work and heal yourself irrespective of that. That's so interesting. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's amazing. Put it this way, I've never laid a finger on my child, you know, and I grew up in a very yeah. violent household. Like, I've never... I very rarely raise my voice. You know, I, we have a beautiful relationship. I am not the product of my childhood. So I've often said this, is that I've, Tom and I's growing up with our father's mm. been very, very different. Tom's dad has been very hands-on and involved. Yeah, it's great. My dad hasn't. So I've, I've said this to Tom a few times when I was on as a guest and since we've had other guests on as well, is I've looked at his behavior and seen how that's what I don't want to be. So that's how I treat people that I'm, you know, my loved ones, etc. So that's an example of someone who's a pro not, not a product of their environment and trying not to be. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really interesting, really mm. interesting. Yeah, I just want to give whoever that person is hope mm -hmm. that they might be feeling a weight of what has happened to them. And I'm sorry, because it's happened to a lot of people, mm -hmm. including myself, and, you know, we're talking about yeah. it. But don't think that there isn't, that it's a poor prognosis, because it's not. And okay. I'm also not going to say, you can fix it in five minutes by downloading an ebook because you can't. But no. you can do like I say, self-discovery, self-reflection, some of the things that we've talked about. The beautiful thing with healing is you can heal it, the paradox of healing. Great thing with healing is you can take one step, do that, and something else will open up to you. The shitty thing about healing is you'll never be done. No. So just take it as like a, this is a gentle jog. We're not sprinting a marathon <laughs> through life. Yeah. And you'll find strange places where you get triggered again. And uh, yeah. This has been eye-opening. I'm going to end it on this is what one piece of advice would you give to your younger self from stuff you know now? I would say never take directions from someone that hasn't left home. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Too much noise. And it stops you trusting yourself, is what I'm saying. It's not it, it just your intuition is never wrong. Intuition is never wrong. That's Love amazing. That. Ali, that. thank you so much for coming on. This has been awesome. <laughs> Thank you.